Our Old Testament lesson comes from Deuteronomy 23, verse 15, and then we'll jump over to 24, 6 through 18. So Deuteronomy 15 and 16, and then 24, 6 through 18. Hear now the word of our God. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. And then over to 24 in verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is the word of the Lord. In Paul's letter to Philemon, the, the apostle calls for a master to free his slave. And some have asked, why didn't he just appeal to Deuteronomy? I mean, Moses says, the escaped slave, you, shall, you shouldn't return to his master. And yet, Onesimus has escaped from Philemon and has sought refuge with Paul. Why doesn't he just say, Moses said, end of story? Well, in our Old Testament, in our uh, politics in the Kingdom of God study, we've had a uh, summit opportunity to reflect on how the Old Testament law applies to us today. And here in Philemon, we have a, a good example of how, how Paul applies the Old Testament to the, his present day. He, he doesn't simply say, hey, look, Moses says I shouldn't return him. Because the Mosaic law was given to Israel as their law, and Paul doesn't live under Mosaic law, he lives under Roman law, because Rome is the, the law of the land. And under Roman law, Paul was obligated to send Onesimus back. So what does Paul do? This will give us an example of how do you take the equity, how do you take the principles, how do you take the, what was the point of the law and apply it to a very different legal situation, a very different, in this case, Roman situation. Paul submits to the governing authorities. He sends the slave back to his master. But along with the slave, he sends a letter that is designed to convince Philemon to set Onesimus free. If you think about it, 
If, if Paul had attacked the institution of slavery, insisting that slavery is morally wrong, threatening to excommunicate Philemon if he refused to emancipate all his slaves, Paul would have turned the gospel into a revolutionary message that was trying to upend the political order. But certainly Paul is clear that he thinks Philemon should set Onesimus free, but Paul does not think that the gospel should be subordinated to political ends. There are a lot of problems in our society. There's a lot of problems in every society. We sometimes, we sometimes think that, oh, America was once a Christian nation. There were far more Christian nations in Europe. I mean, our nation never acknowledged God as the, 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 sort of the ruler of our nation. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that any mention of God. All the nations of Europe were explicitly Christian with acknowledging God in their fundamental documents, established churches. They were Christian just fine, thank you. And yet, just because they were Christian doesn't mean they were free from problems. There are all sorts of problems all over European nations, just like has there ever been a time in America? When America was theoretically the most Christian, we also had slavery. And, well, what do you do about that? Paul does not think that the gospel should be subordinated to political ends. The, the tone of Paul in his letter to Philemon is, is not a virulent invective against slaveholders with the demand for their excommunication. And at the same time, He's not arguing that slavery should be perpetually extended and that's a, it's a wonderful thing. Rather, Paul wants us to see that our new identity in Christ also brings a new community in Christ. We are a new family. We are the family of Jesus. And our old ways of thinking about family will be challenged and should be changed by what it means for the family of Jesus to become where our community is. Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Philemon. Hear now the word of our God from the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. This, this letter is, is a historian's nightmare. One letter... One letter that assumes so much background knowledge, so much relationship, so much that's happened in the past, and all we've got is one letter. We've got nothing from Philemon to, to sort of work with. Paul makes so many vague allusions to past events that sort of the historian in me has to just say, oh well. But the preacher in me says... So what? Because what Paul has given us, what God by his spirit has given us, is all that we need for life and godliness. And all the curious details we'd love to know, we don't need to know. But what we have is what God has given to us. Philemon had heard the gospel from Paul. Uh, Paul refers to him as being his child in the faith. And now Paul is writing from a prison in Rome. How did Onesimus wind up with Paul? Uh, Some think that Onesimus had stolen something and fled from his master. Others think that Onesimus had been sent on an errand but had overstayed his leave and was now in trouble with Philemon. Others think that Onesimus had done something to provoke his master and did not run away. Uh, Paul doesn't speak of him as a runaway, but that he went to seek Paul's help in interceding with Philemon. Uh, One commentator points out that a slave who had no intention of running away but absented himself to ask a friend of his master to intervene was not regarded as a fugitive. So it's entirely possible that Onesimus is not actually a fugitive but uh, has been asking Paul for assistance in resolving something that he has to deal with with Philemon. But however it happened... Onesimus has also now come to faith in Christ through Paul's preaching. And so Onesimus has carried this letter back to his master. Uh, At the same time, uh, as we saw from Colossians, Onesimus has been sent along as one of the messengers bringing Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. As one commentator puts it, we have two stories here, two narratives. One story is about Philemon his old nature and his useless slave. There's a a play on Onesimus' name here. His name means useful. And so when Paul talks about useful and useless, he's playing off of Onesimus' name. The other story is about Onesimus, his new nature, 
the fact that he is now a useful beloved brother. And the father of both is Paul, to the one, Philemon, begotten in freedom, to the other, Onesimus, begotten in bonds. This narrative, therefore, focuses on relationships. Paul and Philemon, Paul and Onesimus, Philemon and Onesimus. Because what Paul is after here is not just emancipation. He's not just interested in in a political goal. He wants reconciliation. He wants this master and slave to enter into a relationship of brother and brother. He also knows this is going to be a tough sell. In Roman culture, masters would regularly and frequently emancipate a favored slave. Uh, The freedman would then owe a debt of gratitude to his master and thus would remain under the patronage of his former master. So this is where there's a there's just a whole lot of differences between the Roman version of slavery and the American version of slavery. So it's, it's, it's important to keep in mind, this is not a system of racial slavery like the American version. This is a system of, of more class slavery where anybody of any race, you know, any race could be a slave. Uh, and so you, don't, you can't tell who's a slave by looking at them in terms of their racial features. But of course, Onesimus' problem is that he's not a favored slave. For whatever reason, he has incurred the wrath of Philemon. And so Paul knows it's going to take some work to persuade Philemon. And so for this reason, he crafts his letter very carefully to make his case. Uh, Some have accused Paul of, of sort of being manipulative and playing on Philemon's emotions to get him to do what Paul wants. But that approach fails to recognize that Paul is utterly convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands this reconciliation. The question for Paul is not what is the right thing to do. The question is, how do you help Philemon to see it? This is where, how do you articulate something to someone? If you want to convince somebody to change their behavior, how do you go about doing it? Do you just march in and sort of insist, you're wrong, you need to change your ways. How often has that gone well for you? If you're concerned about somebody's behavior, you want to think about, how can I express this in a way that they can hear? This was something I, I so appreciated about Virginia in our early years of our marriage. She would take a long time to think about, how can I say this to him in a way that he can hear? what I began to realize was that I may have been a rather difficult person to talk to sometimes. And so I had to work, I had to work on that. And, but that was where her efforts to find the way of saying it really made a difference in, Oh, this is something that is important. You have to think about who are you talking to? And that's what Paul's doing here. He thinks about who is Philemon and how can I, how can I help him to see This is what the gospel requires of him. But it's going to take some heavy lifting here. And he realizes that Philemon's background and education is working against him. Because Philemon is thinking in terms of the traditional Roman way of doing slavery. And Paul wants Philemon to see that Christ 
challenges our social and cultural ways of doing things. And this radically Christ-centered approach is, is even found in the very structure of the epistle. The, the salutation begins with Christ Jesus, verse 1, and ends with Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ in verse 3. The, the thanksgiving and body of the letter begin and end with the Lord, while the sequence of the names of Christ comes to a focus in Paul's repeated emphasis on what it means to be in Christ. Verse 8, that same in Christ appears at the end of the letter in verses 20 and 23. And... This is where, the, and the end of the epistle uh, uses the same Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, at the that he had used at the beginning. So, verse verse twenty three, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Verse twenty five, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same pattern, prisoner for Christ Jesus in verse one, and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's very structuring of the epistle is a statement of what it means to be in Christ. That this new age, this, this eschatological age, the age to come, has dawned in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has come in him. He is the one who brings this new creation. And this is now what is broken in upon Philemon and Onesipus. In Christ, they too are made members of the Lord of glory, risen, ascended, seated in the heavenly places in Him. They are members of the, the church that is above, the heirs of light, the sons and daughters of the great King of glory. This slave, Onesimus, is now in Christ, raised up in the glory not yet fully revealed. The master, Philemon, is also in Christ, lifted up to the heavenly arena and seated with the slaves of King Jesus, even now in glory. Paul does not go after slavery as a social and political evil. And as we saw in Colossians 3, he even commanded slaves to obey their earthly masters. Rather, Paul provides a theological vision of the church as a place in which new relationships emerge and in which slavery cannot endure. You see, what the, way, the way Paul views it is if the church lives as the church, lives as the body of Christ, lives as this new family of God, then if we actually do that, then all of the problems in society will crumble. Now, I realize they're crumble because people become Christians and start living this way. And the people, even people around us, as they see the way we live, say, oh, that's such a better way of living. I think far too often they don't see it in the church. They see the church exhibiting all the same problems as everywhere else in society. And so they're like, what's the point of what you're saying when you're no different from everybody else? And that's where we just have to actually live differently and actually live the way Jesus said because until we do that nobody's going to be listening so it's also important for us to recognize that there are actually two authors of this letter just like we saw in Colossians Paul and Timothy are involved in writing this it's right to see Paul as the lead author and the first person singular throughout the epistle is plainly Paul but the fact that Timothy is listed as a co-author cannot be ignored or dismissed. And at the end of the letter, Paul will send greetings from other fellow workers. 
So Timothy's role in this letter is more than just sending greetings. Uh, maybe that Timothy wrote the first draft and then Paul edited it, or but you know, something. Timothy's involved in the crafting of this epistle. Now, usually Paul highlights his apostolic authority. Uh, in, in the greetings of his letters to the churches, uh, he, he'll start with things like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. But not here. Paul opens by saying, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's, it's the same preposition, the same form here, that when, when he usually says a, a servant of Christ Jesus or an apostle of Christ Jesus, here he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The, the ESV says a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and that, that communicates sort of the point of this in one respect, but it's important to say that he's using that genitive construct that says he's a, he is, in fact, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He is Christ's prisoner. He belongs entirely to Jesus. Now, it appears that the letter to Philemon was sent at the same time as the letter to the Colossians. And so, and Paul also makes reference to a letter that he sent to the Laodiceans. And so apparently there's a, there's a, there were three letters that Paul sent at about the same time. And, uh, and so Philemon would have heard the letter to the Colossians and probably the letter to the Laodiceans read in his church because all these letters, those two letters at least, were supposed to be read in all the churches. This letter was only read in the church that met in Archippus' house. And so Philemon would have heard Paul referring to his apostolic authority when he heard the letter to the Colossians. And now he hears Paul, when he writes to him, saying, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Rather than emphasize his position over Philemon, he takes the route of humility. He, he positions himself as this lower place. I'm a prisoner. By taking the lower stance, he is urging Philemon, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want you to humble yourself as well. I want you to do something that's going to be very difficult given your cultural context, given your social status. I want you to humble yourself. Yes, as he says in verse 14, I could use apostolic authority to command you. Uh, How do you compel reconciliation? I want you two to get along. Okay, uh, kids... If your parents tell you, I want you two to get along, how well does that go immediately? Compulsory reconciliation doesn't usually work. So Paul, because he seeks reconciliation between those who have been alienated, urges the path of humility. Gregory the Great wisely comments that the pastor should be very careful not to use his authority except in the case of those who are in rebellion. I was once reminded of the wisdom of this council when someone came to me with a, a question of how to proceed in a delicate situation. And I, I answered off the top of my head without really thinking carefully <laughs> from a stance of authority, which was entirely the wrong way to answer. The person was trying to figure out how to do the right thing did not need someone asserting authority 
what they needed was an answer from the stance of humility. Part of this is that what Paul is demonstrating for us here is that when you're in a position of authority, you need to be really careful how you use that authority. Sure, sometimes Paul is very bold and commands obedience. But he usually only does that when he's dealing with stubborn disobedience. When he's dealing with a dear friend and close colleague, he thinks carefully about how to say it in a way that will allow his friend to respond well. And this is part of the challenge for us. How do we do that with those who are under our care? Danny Olinger rightly suggests that Paul's use of prisoner of Christ Jesus is a deliberate use of irony. He is writing as an unfree man to a free and wealthy man urging him to liberate another who is unfree. If you think about it, Paul is saying, Hey, Philemon, I'm not free. If you could free me, you would. But I am unfree in the service of Christ. Onesimus is unfree in the service of you. How do we think about our position and how do we position ourselves in our communication to one another? It's a very thoughtful and careful way of thinking and may we have that same care. But then notice that also the letter is written to more than just Philemon. It's to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So let's look at these people. Who is Philemon? He is called our beloved fellow worker, a a term that Paul uses regularly to refer to those who labor in the gospel. So uh, the the way in which the the language is used of the church in your house, it could refer to Archippus' house. It also could refer to in Philemon's house. So the, the, the language of beloved fellow worker suggests that Philemon is an elder, pastor, something of that sort. He's a fellow worker, a term that Paul uses regularly to refer to uh, those who are, who are also in the ministry with him. And we see later in the epistle that Philemon was converted under Paul's ministry. Verse 19, you owe me even your own life. Uh, And Paul frequently uses the term beloved to refer to fellow believers. Uh, Indeed, later in the epistle, he will say that Onesimus is now a beloved brother. And familial language is running all through the letter. Verse 1, Timothy, our brother. Verse 2, Aphia, our sister. Verse 3, God, our father. Verse 7, Philemon, my brother. Verse 10, Onesimus, my child, whose father I became. Verse 16, a beloved brother. Verse 20, yes, brother. All of this is rooted in Paul's doctrine of adoption, that as God has adopted us in Christ, so we now become fellow heirs with Jesus, that Jesus has established one new family, and so we are called to live as that one new family. So while the letter is, in one sense, to Philemon, it's important to see what these other people are doing here. Athea is probably Philemon's wife. Uh, Some think that Archippus is Philemon's son, but 
others suggest he's the pastor of the church. Uh, the letter is addressed to the church in your house, which appears to be Philemon's house, um, but could be Archippus's house. Well, and so, and Archippus is the one that in Colossians, Paul had said, see to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, which may be an admonition from Paul to encourage the rest of the churches in Colossae to make sure that the situation with Philemon and Onesimus is not ignored. So Paul is writing this letter, not merely as a personal letter to a friend, but a personal letter to a fellow elder and one that is addressed to the church, to the fellowship that meets in his house. There's, there's some accountability. Archippus is to make sure that, that some, this is resolved well. As we saw at the end of Colossians 4, there's a connection between several churches in the region. Uh, Colossae, Laodicea, and the church in Nympha's house are at least, and of course here we can see that in Colossae there's more than one congregation. There's this church that meets in Philemon's house, and then there would be other churches in Colossae as well. Uh, so there seems to be several churches that that are in fellowship with each other. You could call it a certain a sort of a presbytery. There's an, there's, there seems to be an eldership that is in charge of this region of of the church, and in. In, in Colossians 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae, which we saw when we looked at that passage. The saints refers to the, all the Christians, and then the faithful brethren refer to the preachers, the, the pastors of, of the church in Colossae. Uh, here, Philemon is, is addressed to Philemon, his wife, Pastor Archippus, and the church that meets in Philemon's house. Uh, and so it's, this is not to all the churches in Colossae, but to the one that meets in this one location. Now, so think about what that means for this letter to be, to be addressed to and therefore read in this church. A, a large house in those days could hold 60 to 80 people. So if you are an, an elder of a 70-member congregation and a letter from the Apostle Paul is read before the whole congregation, which very likely would include other slaves and slaveholders as well. Uh, there's a certain social pressure that begins to develop. And that's partly why Paul is so careful in his tone and so measured in the way that he says it. Because Paul wants to put some pressure on Philemon. But he's also very sensitive in trying to allow Philemon to save face. He does not want to shame Philemon. He wants to honor Philemon, even as he asks him to do something very difficult. But what he is asking comes under the banner of divine authority, as Paul says in his greeting in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's more than just a polite greeting. A polite greeting in a Greek epistle would be, Chirene, greetings. A polite greeting in a Hebrew epistle would be, Shalom. Peace. But Paul says not chirene, greetings, but charis, grace. And he says irene, uh, not just peace generically, but peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same basic greeting that Paul uses in all his epistles. But just because he uses it in all of his epistles doesn't make it a throwaway line. It is a unique Christian greeting that is loaded with meaning. The blessings of the kingdom are grace and peace. 
In the ancient world, a good king was one who used his wealth and power for the good of his people. We need to see that the grace here is is not just ah, the grace of salvation, although unless you take salvation to mean everything in all of what God is doing, because it is that benevolence which God bestows upon all of his people. And this is God's good favor, his good pleasure, that God will bestow all good gifts upon those who fear him. And that's why the grace and is so closely related to the peace of the kingdom. Because peace is not just absence of conflict. Peace, shalom, has to do with well-being, a bountiful and fruitful existence where all is well where life is good. You see this in the Psalms where there's this recognition that things aren't the way they should be and that there should be grace and peace. There should be bounty and blessing. That's that's the way things should be. That's the way God made things to be. But then entered sin and misery into this age. And this grace and peace now comes to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Son of God became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that He is by grace. He who was God became a slave so that we who were slaves might be joined to the life of God. Again, Danny Olinger says it well. The import of such a blessing is that as God is in Himself, so are His people. He lacks nothing, so also they lack nothing. They are filled with the fullness of the goodness of God, and being filled, they are at peace. The placing of the name of Christ upon New Testament believers means that believers, in having Christ, have every good thing. We are now at peace. We now live in absolute confidence that Jesus has risen from the dead and now presides in heaven. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has set Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus free. And now that freedom is to come to expression in their lives as they relate to one another in a Christ-like fashion. And so in his thanksgiving, Paul then will highlight Philemon's love and faith. Uh, Again, it's a very typical thing that Paul does in his letters. He, He has this thanksgiving, which he then targets to the main point of the letter. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, verse 4. And then verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The place we need to start is by seeing this is a love and a faith that is oriented toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Christ is the object and the goal of our love and our faith. Notice again, Paul does not make emancipation, he does not make the political goal, the object and the goal. No social or political movement can ever rise to the place of the object or the goal of that which we are seeking. If we ever orient our love and our faith to a social or political goal, then we have exchanged our allegiance to King Jesus for some other allegiance. Freeing the slaves is a good thing. Obtaining justice for the unborn is a good thing. Obtaining justice for those who have been oppressed and afflicted is a good thing. But how we do it matters. 
Our faith, hope, and love must always be oriented toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul could have taken a strong stand on the inherent injustice of slavery. And in the process, probably alienated Philemon and the other slaveholders in Colossae. But Paul is more interested in developing the sort of community in which actually slavery has no chance of surviving. Because Paul's goal is not to end slavery. Paul's goal is to see the church in Colossae become the sort of place where the kingdom of God is made so evident that masters and slaves are living as brothers, which actually probably means that slavery won't even... Because what happens in the Roman world when, when to, the, to the well-favored slave? They're set free. Because the master sees that there's actually more benefit for, I mean, even economically, more benefit for him to have freedmen in his, on, his sort of patronage network than to have slaves. That's the sort of world in which Paul says, that's, that's the, way, the, way, the way it should happen. Because Paul is going to ask Philemon to do something radically counterintuitive. Roman masters were used to emancipating good slaves, slaves who would then become freedmen and owe their former masters. Whatever the backstory of Onesimus may be, he was not one of the good slaves. Paul's appeal will not be on the basis of how good Onesimus has been. Rather, it will be on the basis that Onesimus is a brother. That's why Paul words verse 6 the way he does. I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, when you hear the, the phrase, sharing your faith, uh, you, may, you may think about that in terms of, oh, is he talking about evangel evangelism, witnessing? The word here is much broader and stronger. I pray that the, the, the communion of your faith, the koinonia of your faith, may become effective. Uh, sharing your faith is not just something you do when you're talking with unbelievers. Sharing your faith, the communion of your faith, is something that you should be doing in every moment of every day, in every relationship with everyone. Sharing your faith means, means living it out in the life that you live around others. The, uh, here, it particularly, it's something you should be doing with your fellow Christians. The koinonia of your faith, this communion of your faith, should become effective, should produce the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. When faith is actively engaged in communion, in community, when faith is being lived out together as the people of God, the invariable result is that we come to know, we come to experience every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And one of those good things, Philemon, is that you will come to know Onesimus as a brother, no longer as a slave. Paul is convinced that being in Christ changes everything. The truth of the gospel breaks down social barriers, turning slaves into brothers. And then Paul adds another line, wanting to make clear that Philemon has already become this sort of man. For I have derived much joy, verse 7, and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You already have this sort of love, Philemon. And I would say the same thing to you. You already have this sort of love. You already practice this sort of communion of faith. 
But that means we need to continue to do it and to do it better. What are the implications of this faith and love as we walk together forward in this city? How can the faith and love that we have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints be made more evident so that the communion of our faith might become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ? How can we refresh and encourage our brothers and sisters and be refreshed by them? It's not a rhetorical question. This is what we need to be asking ourselves as we, as we, as we walk forward day by day. What, what does it mean to, that, that they might derive joy and comfort from our love? That we might derive joy and comfort from theirs as we walk together as, as a congregation? And again, as more than a congregation, I realize, I realize our, our, our denomination doesn't have any other churches besides here in Elkhart in our little circle, but there are other churches of like faith and practice. We, we sort of we get together with with Christ Church Anglican for occasionally. We used to do a lot more of you know bef- before the pandemic. We used to do a lot more. And how do we get back to that? I've been trying to t- talk to the area pastors, but it's hard to get back together again when you haven't been doing something for a while. But how do we? How do we grow together as the people of God in this region? Uh, if you have ideas, let's talk about it. Because the more we can do to, to express the love and the faith that we have for the Lord Jesus and the, the love we have for the saints, this should be more and more evident. And so let's see, seek ways we can do that. Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us and help us as we seek to walk before you as your people that we might, that we might live out the, our, our love for you and, our, and, our, and our, our faith toward the Lord Jesus and help us to live in this way as we walk before you that we might, that we might love the saints and refresh one another as we, as we live before you. May we derive much joy and comfort from one another as we as we live before you. Help us to help us to have the same the same mind that was in in your servant Paul, that as we that as we communicate with one another, that we would think about how to say things in, in ways that will be edifying and building up, that we can encourage one another in the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.